Well, Mark Twain once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I think if we look at our lives, we can see that this is true. I mean, you really don't have to look much further than the fact that stonewashed jeans are back, right? I mean, anybody here own a pair of stonewashed jeans? No? Any people here used to own a pair of stonewashed jeans? There it is. Yeah. Okay. Well, they're back if you haven't noticed. So history does rhyme. And we see not just that, but um, 80s rock is back. Anybody like, praise God, 80s rock is back. I saw some hands there. Things are good there. It's not just that, but you can also tell that history rhymes when you just watch a Nicolas Cage movie, right? I mean, just every Nicolas Cage movie seems to be the same movie, but it just maybe changed the names just a little bit. But I think what Mark Twain said is right. We can look back over history and we can see that, that while it may not necessarily repeat itself, it does rhyme. And, and I think one of the reasons is that we as people tend to believe that we can do better than the people before us or that we're smarter than somebody else so that we know exactly what it is that we need to do. And I think you can see this happen over and over again. You can see it through the stock market, through the economy. You can see it through military campaigns. You can really see it well when it comes to the big ships we build and how we think that those, there's nothing that you can do to sink them. You know, this last week, we were watching the Titanic with my girls. And self-admittedly, I, I love Leo, Di, Di, you know, Leo DiCaprio. Anybody else? Any Leo fans here? If Leo's in it, I'm watching it, right? I'm just like Tom Cruise and Leo. Amen. You don't, don't hold that against me, please. But we were watching the movie with the girls, and they had never seen it, and they had done a research project at school, and we get to the scene where the water starts coming in, and they're, like, screaming and hiding behind the couch, and, you know, so we can only watch it in about two-minute increments. But, you know, there's obviously this reality. It's like you build this beautiful ship. This is the biggest ship that's ever been built, and it's unsinkable. Well, I think we can look back and know that it wasn't. And the captain discarded the warnings for these icebergs. Well, you'd think we would learn from those kind of things, right? Well, we really didn't. In 1987, some of you may be aware, there was another ship, a ferry in the Philippines, that was built to hold about 1,400 people. They had about 4,000 on board. And they thought, oh, I don't need to worry about a warning. And they tried to shoot right past an oil tanker, and they sank. And it seems like when history repeats itself, it's our fault. It's because we think we know better. And, you know, a lot of social scientists have looked and said, that, you know, if you look at 2020, it looks a lot like 1968, which it looks a lot like 1929, which it looks like a lot like 1885. And so what can we learn by looking at the patterns of how history rhymes, of how our lives rhyme? And it's not just history. It's you and me. We rhyme. I mean, I think each of you can look back at situations in your life, and you can see patterns develop, whether it's the way uh, careers go it's relationships, or it's the way you spend your money, but we see, seem to have these patterns that develop in our life. And I don't know about you, but maybe the most difficult pattern and rhythm in my life, and I would guess it's for some of you, comes to do with disappointment. So I think there's these times in life when we get a glimpse of hope, and hope leads us to, to get excited, and our eyes get bright, and our tails get bushy for an Easter reference, and now we're really excited, but then something happens it falls apart, and we end up in a place of disappointment and discouragement. And I don't know about you, but I look back over my life, and I see that that rhythm has repeated over and over again. So if you're like me, we have to be wondering, how do we break the cycle? You know, a couple weeks ago, we kicked off a series called Exodus. We're studying the second book of the Bible. 
Exodus. And we're seeing that, that God's people, there was a family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They moved to, they moved to Egypt out of a famine in Canaan. And they go from a group of 70 to 600,000. And they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And they're calling out to God saying, God, things are so hard. Life is bad. Rescue us. Hear us. Move in our lives. We saw last week that God hears them. And God raises up a man named Moses who's going to be the rescuer. And he, as we talked about last week, he was the last guy that you think God would use. But God raises up Moses. And he, he talks to Moses through a burning bush. And he calls out to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm sending you back. I'm sending you back into Egypt. And Moses is like, well, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? They're not going to listen to me. And so God says, well, let me give you some miracles and some signs. And so God tells Moses to pick up his staff. He drops his staff and it turns into a snake. And Moses runs and hides, which most of us would do if that happened to us. And God says, well, Moses, when you go talk to the people of Israel, show them the staff. And then they'll believe. He said, also, Moses, put your hand in your jacket. I mean, it's probably not a jacket, but put your hand in your shirt, you know? So he puts his hand in, and he pulls it out, and his hand's just white like snow, covered in leprosy. And he puts it back in, pulls it back out, and his hand's completely healed. He's like, look, they're going to believe these signs. He says, one more thing. Take some water out of the Nile and pour it on the ground, and it'll turn to blood. And so Moses does. He's like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And so we see at the end of chapter 4, Moses goes back to talk to the people of Israel and tell them that God hears them, God sees them, and that God is there. And I want you to see how they respond. Notice this. This is the um, end of chapter 4, verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron, Aaron is Moses' brother, went and gathered together all of the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs inside of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their head and they worshiped. So they see these signs, they see these miracles, and they're so excited. They're like, God, he's heard us. He's here. He, he's with us. And they start praising God. They start believing. They start worshiping God. See, I think there's a reality that each of us have in our lives. And it's this. It's the moment that we smell hope. We just get the scent of hope. It's like walking through the county fair and you get a scent of one of those corn dogs. You guys know what I'm talking about? You're just like... Pepe Le Pew, you know, you're working your way. I mean, it's like that. The moment we smell hope, we get excited, our hearts raise, right? We get uh, really to this point where our hearts and our minds run wild. I mean, fellas, it was like junior high when you get the note from the girl across the room and you realize like, oh, she might like me. And remember, you go home, you write that same note three or four times, scrap it, throw it in the trash, write it again. And then you go get your dad's magazine with the Calvin Klein sample. You write, you rub it on your arms a little bit. You guys know what I'm talking about? We all did it. You guys know you did. You're not too good for that. You know you did. So it's that, right? Like our imaginations run wild, our hearts run wild, our minds run wild. We get excited. But then something happens. And it doesn't matter what area of life it is, we get excited, but then something happens. Then Exodus chapter 5 happens. Notice Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. So Israel's believing, they're excited. Moses and Aaron, they're encouraged, they're ready to go. They march into Pharaoh, and notice what happens. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So it's like God's behind us. 
Let my people go. Notice what Pharaoh says in verse 2. Pharaoh says this, well, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh's like, who's this Lord you're talking about? I don't know him, and I'm not letting your people go. They're like my slaves. Why am I going to let them go? And so notice what happens. Pharaoh gets mad. He gets upset that Moses has come and asked this. He thinks the people of Israel are complaining and being lazy, and so look at what he does, starting in verse 6. Notice what Notice what Pharaoh does in verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them and shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Pharaoh says, though they want to go go and have this worship feast out in the wilderness, well, they must, they must have too much time on their hands. Guess what? You guys, you're not, not, not reducing your quota, but instead go get your own straw. Now, to us, like, okay, this is interesting. This doesn't really maybe make sense, but this would have been a huge deal because now they had to spend hours of their day going to make fine straw so they could make bricks, and things got really ugly. And so they, they basically they go to Pharaoh, and they're like, what is going on? Why would you do this to us? This is so impossible. And Pharaoh's like, well, you can thank Moses for this. And so now the people who remember just a couple minutes ago were just praising God and excited and ready to, ready to go, packing their bags, and now they go to Moses. And look what they say in verse 20. So they met Aaron and Moses who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord, look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Notice that. Jubilation, excitement, freedom, hope, despair, disappointment, discouragement. Things got hard, and all of a sudden, they're now blaming Moses and Aaron and turning their back on God, ready to walk away. A 180-degree turn. I think this story has a lot to communicate to us, because I think we find ourselves in the same place. Because I think we can all be real. Part of the human condition is we all experience disappointment. We all have hope, and we all experience disappointment when things don't work out. Or when things are harder than they should be. Or when our expectations of something don't play out the way that we hope they should. Or it's not part of our five-year plan. Or it's not a part of what we were sure God was doing in our life. And, and, and disappointment strikes. And when disappointment strikes, it often derails us. And I think we know this is true. I think each of you can look back at a point in your life and see when you were disappointed and see that disappointment can cripple us and it can shatter our dreams and it can erode our confidence and it can highlight our limitations. And worst of all, what disappointment can do is it can begin to cause us to doubt the goodness of God. It can cause us to start to wonder, God, do you really care? God, do you even hear me? And God, are you even there? It's like it's almost like taking a sponge and wringing out all the water, right? Like disappointment just wrings out all the hope that we can experience in our lives. And, and I wonder, like, why, why is it so easy for us to, to fall into this disappointment? And I, I want to ask the question today and dive into this. Could it be that we're finding our hope in the wrong things? Like, could, could that be it? One of the themes that we see throughout this book of, of Exodus is this, that God has a plan for his people. Like, this is true for the people of Israel. This is true for you. 
God has a plan for you, a plan for your life. But God's plan for your life is often very different than what you think it should be. That was the case for Israel, and that's the case for us. That God's plan for our life is very different than you think it should be. And so right here in Exodus chapter 5, we see a rhythm that begins through this people of Israel that's going to carry for 1,500 years until Jesus comes. And it's going to be present in our lives too. And it's the way we respond when things we hope for don't work out. And what happens is it often leads us to disappointment, which causes us to turn our eyes away from God or completely walk away. But I think, guys, this is what's so powerful about this book about the word of God is because the word of God gives us these patterns to see ourselves in. God gives us Israel to see ourselves in Israel, to see how we make these same mistakes so we can learn to find other ways to get out of the patterns and the ugly rhythms in life so we can win against disappointment. So how do we battle disappointment? We're never going to really get rid of it. It's part of the human condition. How do we learn to fight it? How do we get free from it? How do we get away from it? I think there's a a lot of things that happen in life that maybe don't lead us to discouragement that that aren't positive things. So what's the difference? So I think the difference is hope. And here's how you know. Here's the reason that, now ladies, you guys do this too, but I know some of us fellas do this. It's the reason that your team can lose in overtime of the last game of the year with a stupid interception and not go to the Super Bowl, and you don't want to get out of bed for two weeks, right? Now, why would that be? Why am I disappointed? Because there was hope, right? It's the reason that you can be really hopeful about a job and you get the sorry letter and you don't want to go anywhere and hang out with anybody for several days. But yet you can get sideswiped, you can get rear-ended, you can lose something and it really doesn't bother you. What's the difference? The difference was hope. When you are hopeful of something, it's going gonna, it's gonna to rise your disappointment if things don't work out. So here's a reality here. It comes, like, comes down to the fact that disappointment is, all, is, is almost always rooted in hope. Like the more your hope is, the higher your hope is, the higher your disappointment may be, probably will be if things fall apart. The more expectant you were that that vacation was going to be amazing, the more expectant you were that the doctor visit was going to be positive, the more expectant you were that you were going to get the promotion, the higher your disappointment will be if you don't get those things. So I think there's just a reality here. We have to understand this biblical idea we see in the people of Israel that hope is often linked to disappointment. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these Israelites. Like you can see this in their life, right? They've been enslaved for hundreds of years. They've never tasted freedom. And all of a sudden they get that hope that they are going to be free. And they were so excited. They sniffed hope. But the moment Pharaoh responds and their lives get harder, they fall into this pattern of, regret, or of disappointment. And it happens in Exodus, and it happens in the book of Judges, and it happens in the book of 2 Kings, and it happens in the book of Isaiah, and it happens in the book of, of uh, Jeremiah, and over and over again. And you and I can see it in our lives too. Hope springs eternal, yet disappointment can follow if things don't go the way we hoped. I want you to notice how Moses responds here. So now Moses is experiencing the same thing that Israel's experiencing. They're disappointed, they're discouraged, and he's wondering, God, why would you send me out anyways? Notice what Moses says to God in chapter 6. I'm sorry, in verse, chapter 5, verse 22. Notice how real Moses is here. Like, notice how raw Moses is here. Check this out. Verse 22, then Moses turns to the Lord and says, 
Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For I, since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is saying, God, why did you send me in the first place? You made this promise to me. You said that you were going to be with me. You told me that you were the great I am and that you were going to be there when I went. But things got harder. Why did you send me in the first place? And I wonder, I would guess, that most of us have asked some of those same questions. Like, have you ever wondered, like, God, why is it so hard? I think we all have, right? Like, God, why is this so hard? Like, you've told me in your word that you have this, this plan for my life. What, you tell me in, my, in your word what is going to be best for me, but yet I try to do that, and it's so hard. How come it doesn't come easily? Like, God, you told me that, like, you want me to work hard for you, and that if I apply myself, that, that you know, you're going you're gonna to honor that, but yet I haven't seen any blessing from that. Or, God, you told me you want me to, to be able to, to lead my family well, but that hasn't seemed to happen. Like, God, why is it so hard. I imagine Moses is asking these same things. I mean, can you imagine, like, if God wanted to, God could have gone all Sodom and Gomorrah on Egypt, right? Like, Moses walk in, you know, salt bombs from from the sea and from the Nile, and boom, they're gone. Why didn't he do that? Like, why didn't God just immediately deliver Israel from this situation? Why is it getting harder? Why is it going through this situation. Well, here's the reality. If you know the book of Exodus, later on, God does rescue his people. We'll see that next week, actually. That God does deliver his people from slavery, but he does it in a very different way than we thought they were. And God almost always intentionally, intentionally lets things get more challenging before they get easier. And that's hard to wrestle with, wrestle with sometimes. No, notice this. Exodus chapter 6. Why does God do this? Why does thing, God let things get harder sometimes before they get easier? Well, look at Exodus chapter 6. Notice, Moses says to God, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why didn't you just rescue us? Why did you send me? I'm so confused. I'm so heartbroken. I'm so disappointed. Notice what God says. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Highlight that. Don't miss that. That's key in this. I am the Lord. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But notice this. But my name, the Lord, I did not make known to them. It's interesting, isn't it? God says, I I, I appeared. I was God Almighty. I was God creator. I was the God who made promises. But I did not tell them my name was the Lord. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, say, therefore, to the people of Israel. I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Notice all the I wills and a great act of judgment. And I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Why did it get harder? Why did God allow them to experience disappointment rather than just experiencing delivery and freedom and excitement that was rooted in their hope? It's because this, God wanted to teach them something. God wanted to teach them that he is not a genie in a bottle, that God is not a star you wish upon, that God is not someone who can just fix your issue. God wants you to come to know and believe that he is the Lord. That he is God. 
To call someone Lord means that you give them authority and control and power over your life. So God is saying, I am the Lord. Don't follow me because what you think you can get from me. Follow me because of who I am. Follow me because I am God. If you remember back two weeks ago when we started this series, we said that one of the main running themes in this book of Exodus was that God wanted to rescue the people, uh, his people out of Egypt so that they can go and worship him. That God wasn't going to rescue the people of Israel so they could just have some carefree life or they could just do whatever they want. They can just sit on the beach and play guitars and sing Kumbaya. God wanted to rescue them so they could truly get to a place where they could worship and serve him to break the chains of slavery. And it's the same for you and me. Like God wants to rescue us from whatever that idol is, whatever that thing that's got us in slavery or bondage or, or tied to, so that we can go and we can worship him. And so I think at the heart of what God is teaching us through disappointment and discouragement and, and struggle is this, that God wants to build in you a faith in him that cannot be shaken regardless of the circumstances in your life. That God wants you to have such a strong faith that nothing's going to shake it. And he'll allow circumstances to come in your life, disappointment, discouragement, hard times, and difficulty to show you whether or not your faith is genuine so that you can learn to build a real, lasting, genuine, authentic faith. And praise God that he does that. Because if life was always easy and we never had any hurdles to jump over, then we would always walk away when it got hard. But God is trying to teach us endurance, perseverance, character. And one of the greatest tests of genuine faith is this. One of the tests of genuine faith is how you respond when life doesn't go the way you think it should. So when you hit a hard patch, when you get disappointed or discouraged, I want you to notice how you, how you stir and notice how you respond because it will reveal a lot about where your heart is. It's one of the great ways for us to test and check because God wants to build an unshakable faith. So God's asking, what are you building your hope on? And that what I give, rather, is it who gives it? If you guys know the parable of the sower, it's one of Jesus' most famous parables. If you don't know it, it's in Matthew 13. Go read it later. But Jesus gives us this picture of, of God, um, the word of God, and how it takes root in our hearts. And so Jesus gives us four pictures, four types of soil. He says, imagine, this, remember farming, this is back in the days of agrarian culture, agrarian Hebrew culture. He's saying, imagine somebody's out sowing seed, and he throws it on the path. Some of it falls on the path. Some of it falls among thorns. Some of it falls among rocks, and other falls among good soil. He said, depending upon the type of soil, it's going to spring up differently and take root differently. So he says, when the seed falls on the rocks, what happens is the sun comes out and the, and the seed takes form. The grass shoots up or whatever it is. The wheat takes off, but there's no root. And eventually the sun comes and destroys it and nothing grows. And he says, this is what it's like in our life when we don't have a foundation. Like we are like the rock. We are like rocky soil. We get the word of God. We hear amazing truth in the word of God. And, and, and we, we take it and we receive it with joy and we get really excited about it. And all of a sudden we're hopeful, right? But then life happens. Life gets hard. Difficulties come. We get disappointed and it chokes it out. And next thing you know, it's withered and it's gone. And it's because we had no foundation. 
It's what Jesus is trying to get us to see. What God wants us to see through Exodus chapter 5 is that the root, we have to have place a foundation for the root to take form. And that's in the word of God. Because otherwise, if we don't, we'll quickly walk away. And I think some of you have experienced this. Some of you have seen this. Some of you have, have kind of tasted what that feels like. And it, it's hard and it hurts. But the ultimate question is, where are we finding our hope? And here's the truth. Because if someone walks away because of disappointment and discouragement, it means that they were finding their hope in what God was going to give instead of the giver himself. And when we walk away because things don't work out the way we hoped they would or we expected them to, it means that we were not looking and following Jesus for who he is at all. So it's a question we have to ask ourselves. What if God really does allow that disappointing situation in your life, that discouraging moment to just melt away the trust in the wrong areas so you can truly learn to trust and follow him? to test and see if your faith is genuine. See, if that's true, sometimes it's hard to get our minds around, isn't it? Like that God would allow really tough situations in our life to, to firm us up in our faith. But I think if you think about it, and you can realize that it totally makes sense because God wants to truly get us to a place where we lean on him. See, God isn't punishing us, and God isn't um, you know, he, he being unfaithful to us. Instead, God's showing his faithfulness to us because he's working to win your heart so that when you take your very last breath on this earth, you, without a shadow of a doubt, know that when you wake up that next moment, you are going to be in heaven with Jesus forever. That there's no question that it's a slam dunk because God has shaped you and molded you through the tough situations in your life. And that means whatever difficult situations you're in, you know that God is going to work through that situation to shape you and mold you to be the people he's called you to be. Notice what Peter says about this. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Notice this. Peter says this. He says, when you get hard times in your life, when you get through series of moments of difficulties and disappointments, he actually says rejoice because now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that... Lots of so that's. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through it is by, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God actually allows us things so that your faith will be purified. And that means that you can actually find comfort and rejoice through the boring, unfulfilling job that you're in right now. You can actually see that God is shaping you up through that unhealthy relationship that you have found yourself in. You can actually see that God is moving and encouraging you through that difficulty with an unbelieving child or through that unhealthy diagnosis because God is allowing those things in your life to draw you closer to him, to purify your faith. And he wants you to stop looking at all of the things you can get from him, but rather look to him as the one that gives you everything that you need. So here's the question that I want to wrap up with. How do we learn to overcome the waves of disappointment? Because it's real. Like, we're, we're never going to actually get rid of disappointment in our life. It's part of the human condition. So how do we learn to ride the waves, to overcome the waves, to battle disappointment in our lives? 
The answer is not setting low expectations. The answer is not being, hope, being, not being hopeful. I think the Bible tells us that Jesus came to give us the abundant life. That's a life of hope. So God wants us to be hopeful. He wants us to have so much hope, it's ridiculous, but yet he wants us to hold our hands open, trusting that he knows better than we know. Some of you might know the story in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's this crazy story where they are seen praying, and um, Nebuchadnezzar is, the, is the, the king of Babylon, and he calls them in, and he hears they're not, they're not worshiping him as king, and he says to them, he says, bow down and worship me as king right now, or I'm going to throw you into this fiery furnace. And they're like, sorry, we can't do that. He's like, you realize you're going to die if you go into this furnace, right? And they're like, hey, throw us in there. We know God can and God will rescue us, but even if he doesn't rescue us, we will still praise his name. And if you know the story, they throw the three guys in the furnace and they look in and there's a fourth guy with them in the fire. Jesus is right there with them, bringing them through that situation. God doesn't want us to not have hope. He wants us to have so much hope that it spills over. But he wants us to hold it loosely with our hands to say, God, we know that you are the sovereign king of the world and you hold everything in your hands. Whereas we only have a small, short glimpse so, God, we're going to trust you that even though i got to walk through this hard, discouraging, disappointing situation, God, you know what's best for me and for my faith. See, disappointment reveals what's going on in your heart, and it shows us where good things are made ultimate things. So let's, let's close with this. How do we fight disappointment in our life? i got just two takeaways for you today, just two. And the first one is this. We fight disappointment in our life with full-hearted obedience. I don't know about you, but I know about me. And most of the time in my life that I find myself most disappointed is when I had high hopes for a situation and I looked back and it didn't work out, but I looked back with a little bit of guilt because I didn't give it my all. Anybody remember like playing sports as a kid? And what would the coach say? Go full speed. If you don't go full speed, you're going to get what? Hurt, right? I mean, junior high football, right? If you try to tackle somebody going, going you know, slow, you're going to end up getting hurt. If you're riding a mountain bike, what do you do? Do you take the rock slow or fast? You got to take it fast. Otherwise, you're going to get hurt. You got to go full speed. And I think in our own lives, when we go half-hearted with our obedience, when we go half-hearted with the obedience to our marriage, when we go half-hearted with our obedience to raising up our kids, when we go half-hearted with our obedience to following God, or we go half-hearted with our obedience at work, and it doesn't work out, we're going to be seriously discouraged and seriously disappointed, and we're going to carry some guilt away with that. God says, go full speed. Like, if you're going to follow me, follow me with a full heart. Because that is the way that we fight disappointment and discouragement in our lives. So I, I want to ask you guys, like, where in your life right now are you going half speed? And where in your life right now, what relationship in your life right now, where are you discouraged that it probably has something to do with the fact that you've been half-hearted in your obedience? God says, start today. Go full speed, full hearts. Second takeaway here is this. That we need to remember the gospel. Like, how do we fight disappointment? Well, it's gospel reminders. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice this. I want you to think back early on to chapter 5. If you, you don't have to turn there, but if, you, if you're already looking, notice this. God tells Moses, like, Moses, I want you to go and I want you to tell Pharaoh. I want you to tell Pharaoh that you are here to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And what does Moses do? Moses goes in and he tells Pharaoh, well, 
we want to go worship the Lord for three days in the wilderness. Did God ever say that to Moses? No. God told Moses, go in there and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So it seems like Moses forgot. Moses kind of forgot what God had even told him. He forgot the promise that God told Moses, Moses, just so you know, Pharaoh's not going to listen. And Moses, just so you know, the people of Israel aren't going to listen. Yet Moses goes in there and he's so upset. He's like, God, why did you send me? They didn't listen. It got harder. And God's like, yeah, I told you that was going to be the case. Why didn't you listen? Why did you forget? And I don't know about you, but I know in my life, the times that I've been the most disappointed is because I've forgotten God's promises. It's so easy to forget the promises of God. You see this so often in our life. We forget God has been with us. We forget all the prayers God has answered. We forget all the common grace that God has given us. It's so easy to do when things are going good. Like when you go to the gym, how many of you like hit a great set on bench and you're like, praise God for that? Like that was just amazing, right? Like you have a really good eat a week, a week of eating. You're like, praise God that I had strength to eat nothing but salmon salads all week. We don't do that, do we? We're like, man, I'm doing pretty good. Like I'm, I'm doing pretty, pretty good. Yet when things fall apart, all of a sudden we're like, God, what is going on? What's the problem? And it's because we have forgotten God's blessings. And we can look behind us and we can see this treasure trove of God's faithfulness and all of these beautiful things. But yet we just look ahead and realize how ugly and messy things look. God's like, look backwards. Remember. Gospel reminders. I am faithful and I will always be faithful. See, when God told Moses in Exodus chapter 6, God said, I will rescue. I will redeem. Tell the people of Israel, I will deliver them with my outstretched arm. He's saying, remember, I keep my word. I'm a promise keeper every single time. So forefront, wherever you are right now in your life where you feel disappointment or you feel discouragement, God is saying, look back. Because the reality is that Jesus came into this earth for us. He stepped into this earth. He took on our our, our frailty. He showed us what life looked like. And then he went to the cross and gave himself for us. And he says, I'm doing this because I love you. And then on that third day when Jesus kicked the stone out of the way and rose from the grave, he says, new life is available in me that I am the only way and the only truth and the only life. And if you put your faith in me, I will lead you to a place that you could never go. So Jesus says, whatever is going on in your life, whatever the situation is, just look back. See what I've done for you. And it means I'm going to continue to do it over and over again. And I'm going to continue to rescue you over and over again. And I'm going to continue to make a way over and over I want to close with this. In John chapter 6, we see the story of Jesus. And Jesus has been healing. He's been feeding. He's been giving sight to the blind and healing those that are sick. And he's got this huge crowd that's following him. And one day, Jesus and his his disciples are out in the boat. And they look over, and there's like 20,000 people standing there. And it said that Jesus had compassion on him. So he he went out, and he he fed 20,000 people with a couple dinner rolls and a couple fish sticks. Next day, he goes across the Sea of Galilee and he sees this huge crowd in boats coming to follow him. So he's standing around, he's teaching them, and he says to them, he says, 
you guys are here because you're hungry. And I fed you yesterday. You want me to feed you again. But let me tell you this. That food's going to perish. It's never going to last. The only thing that lasts is me. You have to live on me. And the crowd got really confused. Like, well, how can we eat and drink you? And so they left. It says a lot of his disciples walked away. Imagine that huge crowd just dissipate. So Jesus looks over at his disciples that stayed, and he looks at them, Peter and John and these guys, and he says, well, you guys going to leave too? And I want you to hear what Peter says. Notice what Peter says in John 6. He says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He said, yeah, it's, a, it's hard. It doesn't make sense. But where else are we going to go? You are the one with eternal life and the words of life. See, forefront, I think here's the reality that I want us to wrestle with this week is where you, where you all of us are following Jesus for one of two reasons. We're either following Jesus because of all the stuff that we think Jesus can give us or because we think Jesus can give us what we deserve. But the truth is, life is hard. Tr- troubles are going to come. Disappointment is going to come in our lives. And if our faith is rooted in what Jesus gives us, then we're treating him like a genie in a bottle. When hard times come, we're going to end up walking away. Or we're following Jesus because he is the Lord, because he is God, because he is the one that came and gave his life for you and brings you into new life. And when you're following Jesus for that reason, because he has the words of life, nothing can take you away shake you to the point where you'll ever walk away. So forefront, why are you following Jesus? I hope you can answer that just like Peter did. Because Jesus, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Forefront, would you pray with me?